A few weeks ago, uh, I mentioned to you all that I love reading the newspaper, the, the physical newspaper, um, and, and I got the, the worship team involved in, in uh, showing us what that looked like. If you remember that, um, another way that I really like physical, tangible things is listening to records on vinyl. Um, I, it, it struck me uh, a little while ago that, that CDs are, are pretty much obsolete. We don't actually have anything in our house that will play CDs. Uh, if we wanted to, we would have to put it into the DVD player and listen to it through the TV. That's the only way we could listen to CDs. Most of the time, I listen to the music on a phone, using an app, that kind of thing, streaming it. But I love getting to put on a record and actually listen to it. It has that little crackle to it sometimes, and, and, and it goes. And, and you have to be much more involved with a record because, you know, when it finishes... It doesn't just keep playing or automatically shuffle to some other song. You have to go up and attend to it and flip it over. And, and this is one way that, that I love that. And some of the records that I own, I've actually purchased at a concert that I went to. And, and I love, they have the signature of the artist on it. You know, that makes it even more special. Now, none of the ones that I have are artists that would be super famous or, or well-known. But, you know, if you find, like, a signed record from, like, the Beatles or something, I mean, that is going to sell, right? I mean, you can probably find that on eBay for quite a lot. Um, because a signature gives substance to something. A signature gives a little bit more significance to it. Um, so, so another way that I really like physical, tangible things is through letter writing. Uh, I, I enjoy writing letters and, and cards to people from time to time. And, and in fact, this past year for my birthday, I sent out a message to my friends and I said, guys, the only thing I want for my birthday is a handwritten letter. Um, and I received several from, from several of my friends. It was really fun watching them sort of trickle in, some before, some after my birthday. Um, but there was just something so special, seeing the letters that came, reading them, seeing the handwriting of my friends, uh, and, and all of that. Have, have any of you written or, or received handwritten letters, like snail mail letters recently? This is, keep this alive right? Like, this is good and special, right? And then, so you're, you're writing a letter, you're reading a letter, and, and as you read it, what do you find at the end of the letter? It's a signature, right? A signature. And, and that's so important. After the, the greeting and after the writing of the letter, you always find the signature. Before the letter is sealed and sent, it's signed, right? You write your name at the bottom, and that is a sign that this whole letter— is truly from you, right? All of the words in this letter bear your name, right? And I loved seeing my friends' signatures at the bottom of their letters, right? So, so if you've been tracking along with us for the last month, month and a half or so, then, then we've been in this series talking about liturgy, talking about what we do when we gather to worship Right? And our liturgy also has kind of a signature at the end of it, so to speak. At the end of the service, before we are sent out, we receive the benediction. We receive a blessing. 
right? And the blessing that we hear most weeks is found in Numbers chapter 6. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up there. Numbers chapter 6, uh, beginning in verse 22. All right, so, so every week we gather and worship, and we are shaped through the practices of our liturgy. And so we've gone through each one of these. We are gathered in prayer with the Lord's Prayer at the beginning. We are united in song as we sing. We dwell in the Word. We are welcomed at the table. Last week, we talked about how we are invited to share our gifts with one another, both through, through financially as well as our time and service to one another. And finally, at the end of our liturgy, at the end of every week, we are sent with blessing. This is the signature that we find. So hear these words from Numbers chapter 6, beginning in verse 22. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the Israelites. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So they shall put my name on the Israelites and I will bless them. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your blessing on us. Thank you for your signature by which you put your name on your people. God, I pray that as we consider the words of this text, that you would sharpen our minds and soften our hearts, that we might know you and love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 So this blessing that we hear every week is found in the middle of the book of Numbers, right? And I don't know how often you, you go and, and read through the book of Numbers, but the book of Numbers is called that because it begins with a big census of Israel. They, they gather up all the people and, and count them out. So Moses gets all the people together. And once they have all been named and numbered, a few chapters later, here, we see God instruct Aaron and his sons, who are the priests, to speak these words of blessing over all the people who have been named and who have been numbered, who have been gathered together, all the people of Israel. And, and so these words became a part of Israel's liturgy. It became a part of their common worship. So just like we have a beginning, an ending to our liturgy, so did they. Right? We begin with the Lord's Prayer and end with this blessing. The ancient Israelites began with something called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, right? And then their worship ended with this blessing that we just read. So these words were very familiar to them, and they would rattle around in their heads and in their hearts between their times in the tabernacle and in the temple. 
And these words became incredibly important to them. Many would would write them down on little scrolls of paper that they would wear called phylacteries, right? Sort of like an ancient WWJD bracelet or something, except it actually had scripture on it instead of just a cool slogan. Um, But but archaeologists have actually found some, some ancient phylacteries with the words of this blessing on them. And they were found in a tomb in Jerusalem that dated back to the late 7th century B.C. Right, so this is before Israel went into exile. This is before they were invaded by Babylon and, and the many others and sent off. Right, this is old. Right, and so this text was important to them. It, and, it, and it goes back ages. It was important enough for them, someone to take it to the grave with them. Right, someone to be buried with these words on them. And we see echoes of this blessing throughout the whole rest of Scripture. We see it in the Psalms, and we even see it in the New Testament letters. Right, so all of Paul's letters, every single one of them, and many of the other letters in the New Testament begin with this greeting grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace. The very same things we see here in this blessing. The Lord be gracious to you and give you peace. Right, so it's like this sort of shorthand that Paul had developed to remind his readers of this blessing that they knew. And ultimately to remind them of their blessedness in God through Jesus. So what is this blessing all about? Right, This blessing that the people of Israel heard in their worship, that Paul wrote in his letters, and that we are sent out with every week. We hear these words over and over again. But what do they mean? So, so I want to walk through this blessing sort of line by line and reflect on them together, right? So, so what do these words mean? Tim Keller, uh, a pastor and author, says, The benediction is the meaning of your whole life. He says, if you understood the benediction, when it is said to you, your whole life should flash before your eyes. Right? And, and these, these words that we hear are your life story. In fact, I believe that these words tell the story of the whole world. They tell the story of all of history. It goes all the way back to creation. Because creation is filled with benediction and with blessing. The word benediction is actually Latin for good word. Bena means good and diction means word, like dictionary, right? And throughout Genesis 1, God creates, and then it says he saw that it was good, right? God creates, and he sees that it's good. It's a benediction. And then God creates humans, male and female, in his image, and it says that God blessed them, 
He said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth, care for it, and rule it. And then it says that God saw everything that he had made. He looked over it all, and indeed, it was very good. And then after the six days of creation, it says that God blessed the seventh day, and he made it holy, because on it God rested from all the work that he had done in creation. So the whole creation story is a story of blessing. That's what this is. Our whole world was built upon and culminates in blessing. Throughout it, he says it is good, and at creation's end, he speaks blessing over humanity and over the Sabbath. And in the very same way, our worship service culminates in blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. And so the second word, the second word, keep, it's this word that means to care for and to guard or to watch or observe. It's a word that's often used for God and Israel keeping covenant with each other. Or the word used for the watchmen who keep watch at night. Or a shepherd keeping watch over his sheep. But this word also points to the story of creation in another way. Because in Genesis 2, it says God, God took the man who he'd made and put him in the garden of Eden to till it and to keep it. This is the very same word that we have here in our passage. You see, it's humanity's job to, to watch over, to care for, to guard the garden. But you know the story. Humanity doesn't do a great job keeping watch. And the crafty serpent sneaks in and he makes a mess of things. Humanity is deceived and sins. Humanity failed to keep watch, to guard the garden, and so they are sent from it. And then it says that God places an angel and a flaming sword there to guard the tree of life. Again, this is the same word. And so, though humanity failed to keep and guard the garden, God continued to guard it. And God still guards the way to the tree of life through Jesus. And he invites us back to eat of that tree someday. And this is what blessing truly means. Blessing is a commitment. Think of that ancient tradition of a father who bestows blessing on his son. Right? He speaks blessing over the son, but he also commits to that blessing by giving an inheritance, right? Blessing is not only well-wishing, but actually commitment to well-being. God doesn't only wish you well. He is committed to your well-being. That's why it says the Lord bless you and keep you. 
God blesses and he guards that blessing. He keeps that blessing. He is committed to it. And God is so committed to this blessing that he sent Jesus as a light in the darkness. And that is the next line of this blessing. Verse 25. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. This word shine, again, it has the same root as the word light that we saw in the creation story. It's this picture that even though creation was marred by sin and broken through evil and deceit, God continues to create. He continues to say, let there be light. And he continues to see that it is good. The light of God's face shining is this picture of restoration. We see this even more clearly in a refrain from Psalm 80. Right? This is a psalm of lament. The people of Israel are crying out to God. And throughout Psalm 80, three times, there's this refrain. They say, restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Three times they say this. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. You see, when God's people are lost, in darkness, they call out to him for light and for salvation. And so, I wonder, what darkness do you feel lost in? Maybe it's the darkness of grief. There's someone that you've lost, someone near to you, and and you feel that, that deep ache inside. Or maybe it's the darkness of of doubt. You don't know exactly what you believe or who you can trust. Or maybe it's the darkness of some other situation in life, a broken relationship, a challenging work environment, some kind of difficult transition that maybe hasn't gone the way that you hoped. Or maybe it's being lost in the darkness of your own sin. There's bitterness or lust or pride or something that you know you should let go of and turn away from, but it feels bigger than you. And you just keep falling back into it, the same old habits, ways of being, and and it pulls you farther from God, farther from the people around you. And so, in the midst of our darkness, we cry out, Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. And the story of Scripture is that God has heard this cry. Because in the opening to John's gospel, he writes the light, the true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. He writes this about Jesus. 
who the author of Hebrews says is the reflection of God's glory, the exact imprint of God's very being, the radiance of God. You see, if you want to see the light of God's face, then look to Jesus. He is the light of the world who shines in the darkness. And his light shined its most bright amidst the darkness of the cross. For it is there that we see most clearly that God who blesses does not only wish us well, but truly and fully is committed to our well-being. On the cross, he was so committed that he died for us. And by his wounds, we are healed. Paul writes in Ephesians, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of the grace that he has lavished upon us. Truly, the light of his face shines on us, and he is gracious to us. While we were in darkness, the light of the world came to shine on us and be gracious to us. It is in Jesus that we see the light of God's face most clearly. And Paul declares this even more in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6, which is worth writing down. This is a great passage to spend some time with. He says, For it is the God who said, Let light shine out of the darkness, who has shone in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Through Jesus, we receive the grace of God and we see the light of his face. Now, I love that word, face, right? The Lord make his face to shine upon you. Because this is not just the presence of God. It is the face of God. Let me show you what I mean by that. Right now, we are all together. We are are all in one another's presence, right? But go ahead and turn to the person next to you. Take a look at them. Look into their eyes and keep looking, all right? I know, this is hard for some of you. But, But look, just a moment ago, we were together in one another's presence. But as you look into each other's eyes, there's a whole new way in which you are with each other. Because you're not just present, you are face to face. All right, you can sit forward again if you'd like. Um, Some of you are starting to get nervous. But this is the point. In Jesus, we do not only experience God's presence but we see God's face. And this is the story from the beginning. In Genesis, it says that God walked in the garden 
with humanity. In the garden, we could see God's face. But after deceit and sin, we turned away from the face of God and wandered in darkness. But then Jesus comes proclaiming, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that word repent just means to turn. That word just means to turn. And so after the garden, we turned away from God's face. But then Jesus comes as God in the flesh and he says, turn to me. Look upon my face. Now, when we turn toward God, what face do we see? You know, some of us may be afraid to turn toward God because we think that we will only be met with a frown, an expression of anger or or an expression of disappointment. And, And maybe you've been told this outright. Or maybe you just inferred it from seeing the faces of angry preachers years after years growing up. And listen, it's true that God does sometimes get angry and can become disappointed. But none of this ever overshadows his love for you. So in Christ, the face of God is restored to us. And what expression do we see on that face? Well, look in verse 26. It says, The Lord lift up his countenance upon you. Now, this is not everyday language for us. When is the last time that you use the word countenance in, in your daily life, right? right? But the word countenance simply means the face. It's, it's the same word that was used in the previous verse about God's face shining. And so what it says is the Lord lifts up his face upon you. Well, what does that mean? Well, go ahead and try it for yourself. Lift up your face. And not, not, not this. This is lifting your head. Lift up your face. To lift your face is to smile. So when God lifts up his countenance upon you, he smiles upon you. That is what he is saying. Jesus restores the face of God to us. And when we turn to see God's face, we are met with a smile. We turn toward God. His face is not fallen. It's lifted up. Our God is a God who grins. God smiles upon us. And as we look to him, just like he said to Jesus, he says to us, you are my beloved child with whom I am well pleased. And when we see the smile of God, our hearts are filled with peace. When we see God's smile, we can be assured that everything is going to be okay. So, so in grad school, uh, took a class on marriage and family. And we talked a lot in that class about how we are shaped 
through our relationships with our family and particularly with our parents and, and our caregivers from the very beginning. And most of us know this intuitively from experience, right? But it's been studied time and time again. And one really important piece with young children, especially with babies, is the connection they have with their parents' face. What do they see when they look up at their mom? When they look up at their caretaker? And this has been researched quite a lot. One of the things we learned about in this class was, was something called the still face experiment. And it's this experiment that, that is done to try to, to see what, what effect do, do parents' faces and, and their children have um, and there, there's a, a short video I'd like to show you. We watch this in our class, and, and it's very powerful. Take a look at it now. See if we can get it, get it going. Babies this young are extremely responsive to the emotions and the reactivity and the social interaction that they get from the world around them. This is something that we started studying oh, 30, 40 years ago when people didn't think that infants could engage in social interaction. In this still face experiment, what the mother did was she sits down and she's playing with her baby who's about a year of age. I'm like a girl. And she gives a greeting to the baby. The baby gives a greeting back to her. This baby starts pointing at different places in the world and the mother's trying to engage her and play with her. They're working to coordinate their emotions, and their intentions, what they want to do in the world. And that's really what the baby is used to. And then we ask the mother to not respond to the baby. The baby very quickly picks up on this. And then she uses all of her abilities to try and get the mother back. She smiles at the mother. She points because she's used to the mother looking where she points. The baby puts both hands up in front of her and says, what's happening here? She makes that screechy sound at the mother, like, come on, why aren't we doing this? Even in this two minutes when they don't get the normal reaction, they react with negative emotions, they turn away, they feel the stress of it, they actually may lose control of their posture because of the stress that they're experiencing. Okay. I'm here. And what are you doing? Oh, yes. Oh, what a big girl. Man, my heart breaks when I watch that video. I mean, that is distressing, isn't it? And, I, and as I watch that, I, I feel the dis, all the distress that that, that baby is, is going through, and, and she starts crying. I just, I just want to join in. <laughs> but you see, this is not just an experiment for studying interpersonal family relationships. I think this is a picture of our life with God. Because you see, we live in a world 
that is cut off from the face of God. We live in a world that, yes, God is present, but, but his face is not seen. And so it's no wonder that our world is filled with distress, with anxiety, with fear, with anger. We are like children who cannot see our parents' face. But in Christ, God's face is restored to us. In Christ, we come in contact once more with the smile of God. And at the sight of that smile, we can let all the worry and the anxiety, fear, and stress wash away. As the Lord lifts up his countenance upon us, he gives us peace. Do you see how quickly the child changed whenever the mother responded once more? This is our life in Christ. To see God smile once more. To receive the peace of God And that word peace, it's the word shalom. Many of us have have heard at times before, it doesn't just mean a lack of chaos or conflict, but rather the presence of peace within chaos, even within conflict. It's a word that means whole, safe, complete. It means blessed. Peace results from the God who blesses us and keeps us and whose smile shines upon us. God restores us with his grace and fills us with his peace. And this blessing is how God signs his name before sending the letter. Look at verse 27. It says, They shall put my name on the Israelites. This is how I will put my name on the Israelites. And I will bless them. And so what does it mean to have God's name upon us? Well, in some ways, as we've already talked about, it is a picture of restoration. In the beginning, we were made in his image. And though we were marred by sin, he has now restored us and placed his name upon us again. For us, I think, in many ways, this is a picture of of baptism where we joined Christ in death and resurrection by dying to our old selves, being born into new life. For when we were baptized, it was in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. From that time on, we bear his name wherever we go. And so every time you hear the benediction, it should be a reminder of that 
baptism, of your life in Christ, your life with God. So having the name of God upon us, it's a picture of our restoration. And it is also a picture of our mission. Because when God's name is upon us, we carry that name everywhere we go in the world around us. To carry God's name is for our faces to be little reflections of God's smile in the world. To be carriers of God's peace in the world, wherever we go. You know, when when Jesus sent out his disciples, he told them that as they came upon a house, that they should say, peace be to this house and let their peace rest there. Right? These were the instructions that Jesus gave as he sent his disciples out to, to share the good news, to evangelize, right? And, and man, I think one of the most powerful ways that we can be the gospel, share the gospel in the world with others today is simply by being a non-anxious presence wherever we go. To be a person of peace amidst a world that is filled with anxiety and chaos. Man, that is the most countercultural thing that we could ever do. To be a non-anxious presence in the midst of anxiety and distress. Because we are those who have seen God's grin. And so, let us partner for peace, right? And the world around us. And ultimately, God blesses us so that we might be a blessing in the world. And as we said, blessing does not mean only wishing others well, but actually committing to the well-being of others. It is not just well-wishing, but a commitment to well-being. And so who are the people in your life that God is calling you to not only wish well, but commit to? And remember, this isn't just your friends and the people you get along with. Jesus says, love your enemies and bless those who persecute you. Who are those people? who God has called you to not only wish well, but commit to. Love them. Bless them. And so with the words of this blessing, the whole history of the world flashes before our eyes. At the words of this blessing, our own lives find their meaning. It is through this blessing that God puts his name upon us, and we are sent with blessing. Amen.